1: Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 55, Land Warfare, 1945-1950. to I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Most of the shows so far, we've examined the high politics and the diplomacy of the early Cold War. This episode is designed to give you more of an understanding of some of the military aspects of the conflict. In this episode, we're going to examine from a high level what land warfare looked like in the first five years of the Cold War. Naturally, this era was heavily influenced by the Second World War, not only in its weapons, but also in its strategy and tactics. The mentality of the people who were fighting and their leaders, both civilian and military, were also deeply affected by World War II. World War II, the most devastating conflict in human history, reordered the world politically, socially, culturally, economically, and militarily. In 1939, there were six leading military powers. Great Britain, France, Germany, Russia, Italy, and Japan, three of the great military powers of the pre-war era had ceased to exist, Germany, Italy, and Japan. France was effectively left crippled from the conflict. Russia and Britain had survived, but they were joined by a new military power, the United States, who up until the war had been primarily an economic power. The period 1945 through 1950 had five major armies. The American, British, French, Soviet, and Communist Chinese armies. Granted, other armies existed, but these forces were smaller and less influential during the period. The Soviet army was by far the largest with roughly 3.7 million active troops and an additional 6.7 million in the reserves. This was complemented by some 1.2 million troops from the Eastern Bloc vassal states who had another 5 million men in reserve although the quality and loyalty of these soldiers was questionable. The Soviets had anywhere between 75 to 90 battle-hardened divisions stationed in Europe throughout the period. Nevertheless, the Soviet army saw no action during this era, minus the tense moments in and around Berlin, 1945 to 1949. The Soviets maintained such a large army throughout the period in part to maintain their occupation of Eastern Europe and as a response to the American atomic policy. The Soviets had begun a project to build an atomic bomb in 1945 in the wake of the American attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but in the interim maintained a sizable force in Eastern Europe as a deterrent to NATO. The American army at the end of World War II had successfully fought a two-front war in both Europe and the Pacific. In 1945, the U.S. Army had some 8 million men in uniform. Nevertheless, following at the end of World War II in September 1945, the army quickly demobilized. By 1950, the U.S. Army had shrank to just 593,167. The army went from 88 divisions to just 10 by 1948. The army consistently shrank below congressionally authorized levels as army leadership struggled with what type of army the U.S. should have in the post-war world. Despite this decline, though, America maintained its largest army in peacetime history and its first peacetime conscripted force, Battle-hardened from World War II, the American army, though, saw no combat during the period, again minus the tense moments in and around Berlin 1945 to 1949. In many ways, the U.S. Army and defense in general had been ignored as a result of the American atomic monopoly. It was assumed that America had little to fear from enemy armies now that they had the atomic bomb. The British Army in 1945 stood at 3.5 million men, and despite demobilization and defense cuts, remained at roughly a million men through the period of the early Cold War. Conscription continued into the 1950s, and indeed the British Army didn't sink below 500,000 men until 1961. Despite its imperial commitments and weakened financial position, Britain recognized its obligations to participate in the defense of Western Europe and form the British Army of the Rhine, or Boer which had a troop strength which ebbed and flowed with a low of 25,000 troops to a high of 60,000. Unlike the Soviets or Americans, the British Army saw continuous action during the period. British forces participated in the Berlin Crisis and in the deteriorating decolonization of both India and Palestine. British forces also briefly participated in fighting in both French Indochina and Indonesia. Britain also began a protracted campaign against communist guerrilla forces in Malaya, which began in 1948 but wouldn't end until 1960. I know many people don't think of France as a great military power, but this is in light of their defeat in World War II. France historically, since the time of Louis XIV, has fielded impressive and fierce armies. Napoleon in the 19th century had come close to achieving hegemony in Europe. Despite Napoleon's defeat in 1815, France's empire overseas expanded under both the Second French Empire and later the Third French Republic, despite its defeat at the hands of the Prussians in 1871. In 1918, the French, along with the Americans and British, defeated the Germans and restored French military glory. The French defeat in 1940 was not only shocking but humiliating in the quickness in which it happened. Yet in 1945, France, with the second largest empire in the world, with large colonial positions in both Africa and Southeast Asia, was an important political force in the world. Hence, by default, the French army was an important element in the political landscape of the early Cold War. The French army in the post-war period was a mess. The bulk of its forces had come from her colonies, about 300,000, and had suffered heavy casualties in the closing stages of the war. This force was augmented with some 120,000 men who had been former resistance fighters. The inclusion of these forces made the French army of the period a semi-civilian organization, manned by a corps of seasoned professional soldiers. The makeup of the army varied greatly, from age and class to political views. These men had to be taught discipline, they had to be supplied, and taught the basics of logistics. By 1946, though, the French army comprised some 1.3 million men yet a large portion of some 38,500 were officers composed of different political groups trying to gain control of the army. Eventually, the army was purged of many of its more socialist elements, and by 1947, the number of officers had fallen to 22,000. Following the end of hostilities in Europe in May 1945, the French army would see continuous action throughout her empire. They faced growing unrest in North Africa, as well as insurrections in both Madagascar and Vietnam. Despite the tempo of operations, though, the French army lived off old stocks, what the government could give them, and what aid they could get from the Americans. Army pay during the period was notoriously bad, as the average French mailman made more than a French lieutenant, and the morale of the army was generally poor. In an interesting twist of fate, many of the soldiers who fought in these wars were not French but colonial subjects and mercenaries, many of whom had been from Germany and Italy who had fought against France in in the Second World War. The other major army of the period was that of the Communist Chinese, which peaked at around 2.8 million men in 1948. The Chinese army was poorly trained and equipped, and at least a quarter of its officers were illiterate, and yet it united the nation under a single government for the first time since 1912. The communist victory in 1949 tilted the balance of the Cold War and changed the political dynamics of the politics in Asia for decades to come. The battles in China were some of the biggest of the period. The communists were armed with a mixture of captured American and Japanese arms and what could be supplied by the Soviet Union. The People's Liberation Army, despite its humble origins, would be one of the growing forces in the 20th century and would be a major player in the Korean War. Generally speaking, armies during this period were mixed, being comprised of a small corps of professionals, primarily officers and NCOs, with the enlisted ranks manned with conscripts. Large mercenary formations like the Gurkha and French Foreign Legion also existed at the time and saw a lot of fighting in Madagascar, French Indochina, and Malaya. Colonial forces also saw a lot of fighting during this period as the French and British attempted to hold on to their empires. For example, British subjects from East Africa were deployed to fight communist insurgents in Malaya, and Tunisians and Algerians were sent by the French to fight in Vietnam. There were differences, though, in how the Europeans fought these wars. Both the French and the Dutch used only metropol volunteers to fight in Vietnam and Indonesia, whereas the British used conscript units from the United Kingdom in combination with local and imperial forces in Malaya. The two methods of warfare to come out of World War II to deeply affect the early Cold War were blitzkrieg or mechanized warfare and partisan or guerrilla warfare. Blitzkrieg revolutionized World War II in Europe. Blitzkrieg was a method of warfare by which tanks and motorized infantry supported by close air support broke through enemy defenses by short, fast, powerful attacks dislocating defenders using speed, surprise, and maneuverability to encircle and destroy enemy forces. There had been experiments conducted and books written around mobile warfare in the 1920s and early 1930s, but it was really Germany who spearheaded the use of armored warfare 1939 to 1941. The Germans won a series of quick victories over Poland, the Low Countries, France, Yugoslavia, and Greece, in addition to the opening stages of the German invasion of the Soviet Union. The fall of France in 1940 was an especially shocking event. France, which had held out against Germany in World War I for over four years, fell to Germany in six weeks despite having a larger army and more tanks than Germany. Despite these early victories, it's important to point out that in spite of these victories, Germany had very few mechanized and panzer divisions. Most of the German army was still composed of infantry formations and was still very reliant on horses and trains to transport troops, supplies, and guns. Nevertheless, unlike the French or the Soviets in the opening stages of the war, they grouped their tanks and mechanized units together in powerful spearheads. The Germans also had better tank radio communications and air support, which compounded their methodological superiority. The Allies quickly learned from their mistakes and built and organized their own mechanized forces. 1942 to 1945 witnessed large tank battles from the sands of North Africa to the Russian steppe and in the dense forests of the Ardennes. Tanks like the Sherman, T-34, Tiger, and their units, the Desert Rats, Second Armor, and the Soviet Guard Divisions became legendary. Nevertheless, in the five years following the Second World War, the beginning of the Cold War saw little in the way of large-scale mechanized warfare, especially between the superpowers. France attempted to use armored warfare in, in French Indochina with mixed success. In the grasslands of South Vietnam, French armored forces did well, yet in the highlands of North Vietnam, with its mountainous terrain, few roads, and deep canopy jungle, they performed poorly. The Vietnamese lacked armored forces and fought as a guerrilla force, and tanks in the conflict didn't play a critical role. As the war progressed, the French preferred to use airborne forces, as the French mobile columns often became bogged down and or trapped. In other conflicts, though, tanks continued to play an important role. Light Indian armored forces played an important role in the First Indo-Pakistan War. India used war surplus M5 Stuart light tanks in Kashmir, securing their control of the region, and relieving their airborne forces. Armored forces also played an important role in the First Arab-Israeli War, 1948-1949. to 1949. Israeli and Arab forces used surplus, abandoned, and stolen equipment from the British and Americans. Many weapons were also left by the withdrawing British to both sides, and arms dealers also bought surplus tanks as the world was awash in arms at the time with the aftermath of World War II. Israel's mechanized units were often little more than trucks fortified with mounted machine guns and sheet metal for protection and a few armored cars from World War I. Indeed, Hotchkiss H-35 French tanks from the 1930s were the first real tanks employed by Israel. The Arabs, in contrast, used a hodgepodge of tanks, half-tracks, motorized vehicles of British, American, and even German origin, although armored forces were not the decisive factor in Kashmir or Palestine. Their mere presence did influence the course of events and would play a critical factor in future regional wars. Surplus and captured American and Japanese tanks also played a small but critical role in the closing stages of the Chinese Civil War, 1948-1949. to However, these engagements were small in nature and fought with second-hand and obsolete tanks. In Europe, the U.S. monopoly on the atomic bomb canceled out the possibility of large mechanized warfare between NATO and the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, the Soviets placed large mechanized forces in Eastern Europe. World War II saw the development of hundreds of different tanks, tank destroyers, self-propelled guns, half-tracks, armored cars, scout vehicles, etc. By the end of the war, though, tanks were broadly speaking divided between light, medium, and heavy tanks. Light tanks performed scouting duties and were often deployed to isolated landscapes like the Pacific as they were easier to transport. Medium tanks engaged and killed enemy tanks, and heavy tanks provided artillery and infantry support. In reality, though, small tanks and heavy tanks soon became obsolete as medium tanks could perform most of these tasks. Moreover, medium tanks continued to grow bigger, especially as the line between heavy and medium tanks blurred and the concept of the main battle tank developed in the 1950s. All tanks are, in essence, compromises between mobility, firepower, and protection. The major armies of the period all came to different conclusions about the balance, based primarily upon their experiences in World War II. The Soviet army adopted a strategy of attack coupled with fast, highly maneuverable tanks with good firepower built in large numbers. Concerns about protection and crew safety were lesser worries. In the Soviet perspective, tanks had a short battlefield life of a few days on average, hence numbers trumped quality. And their perspective, there was no use building expensive tanks only to lose them after a few battles. The British came out of World War II shaken by how poorly their tanks had performed. Their tanks, especially their guns, had been outclassed by the German tanks. Thus, they gave firepower the highest priority, followed closely by protection with mobility a poor third. Naturally, Britain, a smaller island nation, couldn't build large tank armies like the Soviets, The alternative was to build deadlier, more survivable tanks. The Americans fell somewhere in between the British and the Soviets when thinking about tanks in the Cold War. Like the Soviets, they favored mobility and firepower as the primary focus and protection as the third priority. America, with its production capacity, could produce just as many tanks as the Soviets if need be. However, American development of tanks lagged behind that of the Soviets' development until much later in the Cold War. At the start of the Cold War, Soviet tanks were all diesel-powered, while British and American tanks were petrol-powered. Petrol-powered tanks provided greater power for a given weight than a diesel engine, but fuel consumption was higher, resulting in shorter ranges and more logistics. Moreover, petrol tanks like the Sherman had the nasty habit of, quote, brewing up, or starting on fire when hit and burning their crews alive. Some American tankers even called them Zippos in reference to the American lighters. The mainstay of the American and British Army during the period nineteen forty five to nineteen fifty was the American built M four A one Sherman or the British Firefly. The tank had seen extensive service in World War II, with some forty nine thousand two hundred and thirty four built. They served in North Africa, Western Europe, in the Pacific, and in Eastern Europe with the Russians through Lendleys. The tank was easy to build and extremely reliable. Its armor was roughly two to three and a half inches. Originally, the tank was armed with a 75-millimeter gun, but later upgraded in 1944 with a 76-millimeter gun to make it more competitive against the heavier German tanks it was coming up against. It clocked in at 22 to 30 miles per hour, depending on terrain, and had an operational range of about 100 to 150 miles, again depending on terrain. The Sherman would see considerable action in the early Cold War in Korea, the Middle East, and French Indochina. The heavy tank of the American Army was the M26 Pershing, which had been deployed in World War II in the waning days, to deal with the German Panthers and Tigers. It hit it on average between 75 to 102 millimeters of armor and was armed with a 90 millimeter gun, with a top speed of around 30 miles per hour and an operational range of about 100 miles. The Pershing would see action in Korea, but saw little action throughout the rest of the Cold War. British tank development made a considerable advancement in tank production with the arguably one of the best tanks of the period, the Centurion. It was one of the first main battle tanks of the Cold War and remained in production until the 1960s, serving in numerous Cold War conflicts such as Korea, the Suez Crisis, the Second and Third Indo-Pakistan War, the Six-Day War, and the Yom Kippur War to name a few. The tank's armor measured between 51 to 102 millimeters and was initially armed with a 76.2 millimeter rifled gun, which provided more accuracy. It had a top speed of 22 miles per hour and an operational range of 50 miles. The Soviet medium tank of the period was the T-34-85, the mainstay of Soviet forces throughout the Second World War and the early years of the Cold War. Like the Sherman, the T-34 saw extensive service in World War II, with some 84,000 being produced between 1940 and 1958. Like the Sherman, it was rugged and reliable and easy to produce. It remained in service with reserve units of the Soviet Army until the late 1960s. The tank would see extensive service throughout the Cold War in Korea, the Middle East, and in Africa. Its armor averaged between 47 and 60 millimeters of armored protection. It was armed originally with a 76mm gun, but later upgraded with a 85mm gun to deal with heavier German tanks. Its top speed was 33 miles per hour, with an operational range of 150 miles. The Soviet heavy tank was the JS-3, which, like the Pershing and Centurion, was introduced at the end of World War II and just missed the war. It saw limited service during the Cold War, with only a few thousand produced. Most notably, it did participate in crushing the Hungarian uprising in 1956. 100 also participated in the Six-Day War, but saw limited service as static defensive forces. It was armed with a 122-millimeter gun, with armor protection averaging between 60 to 175 millimeters. Its top speed was 25 miles per hour and had an operational range of 115 miles. Moreover, the cast iron hull and turret were excellently shaped, which increased its protection, making it impervious to any existing NATO tank gun, and for its time it was a very formidable threat to NATO forces. As you can see, the Sherman M4A1 and the Soviet T-34-85 were pretty much evenly matched. They had roughly the same max speed with about the same operational range. The Sherman did have better armor, but the T-34 had a better gun. NATO commanders, though, were especially concerned about the JS-3, which was superior to the Pershing and Centurion with a better gun and better armor, and only a tad slower than either of its NATO counterparts. The majority of tanks deployed in East Germany and Eastern Europe were T-34s. Nevertheless, hundreds of JS-3s had been deployed in Eastern Europe, and in the event of a war 1945-1949, to NATO forces would have been outclassed. Nevertheless, as mentioned earlier, this technical Soviet edge in tank development was muted with the American atomic monopoly. Even with the introduction of mobile warfare into the 1950s and later with smaller armies, the infantry was fundamentally unchanged from the Second World War, divided into battalions of between five to eight hundred men distributed into three to five rifle companies. The main feature of all infantry battalions, however, was the great majority of men moved on foot as infantry had done since the beginning of time, despite the advent of mobile warfare. Indeed, efforts were made during the Second World War to make infantry more mobile. One of the biggest challenges in Blitzkrieg was German infantry keeping up with the tanks. As the tanks made a breakthrough, it was difficult for infantry to exploit these advances. Armored forces needed infantry to hold the terrain they had captured so they could move forward. Moreover, they needed infantry support to help protect their flanks and deal with enemy infantry. As man held anti tank weapons such as bazookas and panzerfaust proliferated in the closing stages of the war, it became even more critical for tank columns to be supported by infantry who could defend tanks against such attacks, clearing hedgerows and urban areas where tanks could be ambushed by such weapons. Hence, efforts were made during World War II to make infantry more mobile. Often troops would just ride on the top of tanks into battle and then jump off when engaged in combat. This was a cheap and effective solution. Yet, if the tank was killed, not just the tank, but the men riding on it were killed. Second, riding on tanks and jumping off of them was dangerous. Men could and did fall off tanks and kill themselves, breaking their neck or falling off and being run over. Men could also damage or break their ankles and or knees by climbing onto and jumping off of tanks. Some battalions were given trucks to enable the infantry to keep up with the tanks. This worked to an extent, but trucks provided little protection and were expensive. Troops had to dismount and still march to the battlefield. If troops were ambushed or caught in their trucks, it would result in even more casualties and the loss of the truck. Moreover, trucks couldn't move cross-country. They needed roads to be effective, which limited their mobility. The Americans, British, and Germans introduced tracked vehicles like the British Universal Carrier or German and American half-tracks. These vehicles provided mobility to keep up with the tanks and better but not perfect protection and even additional firepower. Yet this wasn't even more expensive than providing trucks. The basic issue of troops keeping up with tanks remained an issue during the period and wouldn't really be addressed until the mid-1950s with the introduction of the Armored Personnel Carrier, or APC. While the tank became the public and political symbol of the Army's military prowess overshadowing other battlefield weapon systems within armies, artillery remained critical. As in World War I, artillery was of great importance in World War II. In the early Cold War, artillery continued to play an important role. Soviet artillery had established an awesome reputation during the Second World War. Yet, for the next 20 years, the Soviets would rest on their laurels. The well-established Soviet artillery tactics and technology of deploying towed artillery in rows of six and uncamouflaged fired positions didn't change. The Soviets continued to use the same types of guns throughout the 1950s and stayed with towed artillery into the 1960s. It was only in the 1970s that they introduced self-propelled guns and changed tactics. Many armies during the period still used pre-planned artillery attacks, which were static and from time to time led to friendly fire incidents. Moreover, many armies were still using horses and trains to transport supplies and their artillery, which was far less efficient than motorized or self-propelled artillery. U.S. Army artillery was some of the best in the world following World War II. They motorized their artillery, making them more mobile, allowing them to keep up with the tanks and improve logistics in getting ammo to units. The introduction of radios in the platoon level also enhanced their ability to provide fire support. The U.S. also deployed a large number of self-propelled guns which would keep up with the armor and mechanized infantry such as the M7 Priest and M41 Gorilla, which saw service in Korea and later with other armies in the Cold War. American artillery also enjoyed superior quality ammunition. This quality was enhanced with proximity-fused detonators, which allowed shells to explode in the air versus impact shells, which killed more enemy troops. The Soviets and Germans were dependent on slave labor and low-quality control processes, which had an effect on the accuracy and lethality of their shells. The Americans didn't have the biggest guns of the period, but a focus on the process and accuracy made American artillery arguably the deadliest in World War II. The Americans fielded standardized artillery versus building things like massive railway guns like the Germans. The ability to coordinate fire, planning, and execution with the troops being supported to readily observe the impact of their fire and to effectively shift as needed created a synergy between American tanks, artillery, and infantry. In regards to anti aircraft weapons, the period saw little development. Both the Soviet Union and Western Allies operated from 1943 on in an environment of air supremacy leading to the virtual and neglect of air defenses for armies of the early Cold War. Therefore, there was a continued dependence upon World War II anti-aircraft guns well into the 1950s. I want to take a quick break here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. If you like the episodes about military history like this episode or episodes about the French War in Indochina, or the British crisis in Malaya, help us by making a donation or spreading the word. To make a donation, visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so that you can access to our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. The methodology or strategy to see the greatest growth in this period was indeed much older than Blitzkrieg, guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare is a form of asymmetrical or irregular warfare in which a smaller, te- typically irregular force engages in small group actions which include ambushes, sabotage, raids, and highly mobile hit-and-run tactics. Asymmetrical warfare dates back to the beginning of human history and is explored in detail in Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which was written circa 600 B.C. The 20th century witnessed a number of guerrilla struggles starting in the Philippines with the resistance to American occupation into the late 1980s with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan fighting against the Soviets. The Second World War witnessed a number of guerrilla conflicts as various nations fought Axis domination. Indeed, 1945 to 1950 following World War II saw more than a few partisan conflicts erupt. In the Baltic and Ukraine indigenous forces fought to win independence from the Soviet Union into the 1950s. Greece witnessed bitter fighting between right-wing nationalist government forces and communist partisan forces supported by Yugoslavia and Albania. Madagascar had a short-lived rebellion. Vietnam became an intractable guerrilla war as the Viet Minh fought the French for independence lasting until 1954. Malaya also witnessed a long-term struggle which began in 1948 but wouldn't end until 1960. The opening stages of the Chinese Civil War, 1946 to 1948, also saw extensive guerrilla warfare as the Nationalists attempted to capture communist held northern China. During the period, guerrilla warfare came to stress four main elements base areas, foreign assistance, transition to conventional warfare, and public opinion or hearts and minds. In guerrilla warfare, a key element was the establishment of secure base camps from which you could recruit indoctrinate, train, supply, rest, organize, and rebuild forces. Base camps were typically established in remote and defensible terrain such as mountains and or jungles. However, it was important that these bases not be too remote. They needed to be at least a, a reasonable proximity, at least a few days walk, to villages or urban population centers. From these base camps, operations could be mounted to raid enemy supply lines, mount hit-and-run attacks, and or infiltrate fighters into cities or villages to recruit new members, gather intelligence, or mount terrorist attacks. The most critical element in guerrilla warfare during the period was continued foreign support. Soviet aid for China and later Chinese support for the Viet Minh was invaluable. These nations offered safe base areas which couldn't be attacked. More importantly, they offered training, supplies, and weapons to continue the struggle and were critical for the final stage of guerrilla warfare, the transition to a conventional war. The transition to a conventional war is the final stage in which a conventional army is built which can defeat the occupying army. This occurred in Vietnam when the Viet Minh stood head to head with the French and defeated them at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. The defeat didn't destroy the French army or endanger France from an existential sense, but politically it crippled the will of the French people to continue. The Vietnamese army with its mastery of artillery had shown the world that they could build a professional army like any nation gaining the credibility and legitimacy for the Vietnamese national project, just as the Continental Army, a victory at Yorktown over the British in 1781, gave credence to the American national project. Ultimately, guerrilla warfare is a war of attrition. The insurgents hope to physically wear down the enemy and psychologically undermine his will to continue to fight. Hence, the battle for hearts and minds. The communists in Malaya and the Viet Minh in French Indochina sought to wear down and delegitimize the colonial authorities, all the while building up their legitimacy as the rightful government of their respective region. Of the eight major guerrilla movements waged during this period, three succeeded, Indonesia, China, and Vietnam, and five failed, Madagascar, Malaya, the Baltic, Ukraine, and Greece. Again, foreign aid proved to be the critical element. Both China and later Vietnam were able to secure support from the wider socialist bloc, whereas Greece, the Baltic, Ukraine, and Malaya were isolated from foreign support and received little physical aid. Madagascar held out hope that the United States would pressure France to the negotiations table. Hopes for American political support failed, and the geographical isolation of the island resulted in a French military victory as insurgents ran short on supplies. A similar situation played out in the Baltic and Ukraine, where Soviet forces systematically wore down resistance. Isolated far inside the Soviet Empire, they lacked easy access to Western support. Moreover, politically, in the early years of their struggle, the West showed little interest in their movement. By the time they started to take them seriously, it was too late. Indonesia lacked resources and direct foreign aid in its fight with Holland for independence. Nevertheless, foreign political support was critical in its independence. The Dutch had been greatly weakened by World War II, which left them dependent on American financial support. Unlike in Madagascar, American United Nations pressure compelled the Dutch to leave despite their military victories on the ground. Unlike partisan struggles in World War II, many of these guerrilla wars were also civil wars which enhanced the level of violence. Even before the 20th century, civil wars by their very nature were existential conflicts in which there could only be one victor. The Taiping Rebellion and the American Civil War are two such examples. The most obvious civil war was in China between the Nationalists and the Communists, as was the Greek Communist insurgency. The wars for independence against the European powers were also in a way civil wars as significant portions of the population supported European authorities against the communist insurgents, as in Vietnam and Malaya. These collaborators or imperial subjects were personally invested in the continued imperial project and supported European rule for a variety of complex reasons. The independent struggles in the Baltic and Ukraine were also civil war-like struggles. Many Ukrainians, Latvians, Estonians, Lithuanians fought against their ethnic kin in support of the Soviet project. Hundreds of thousands of ethnic Russians also immigrated to these regions, and many people intermixed and intermarried. Soldiers and partisans during this era were armed with an assortment of leftover and surplus small arms which included a large variety of rifles, submachine guns, heavy and light machine guns, although most troops during this period were armed with bolt-action rifles. One of the most famous of these being the British Enfield Rifle, a 10-round semi-automatic, magazine-fed bolt-action rifle, which served the British Army and Imperial forces from 1896 until 1957, with some 17 million produced. The Enfield, with its fast-operating bolt and magazine, could lay down a deadly rate of fire with 20 to 30 rounds a minute. When German forces first encountered British forces in World War I with the infield, they mistakenly believed that they had come under machine gun fire. In the early Cold War, they saw action in many of the conflicts of the period, from the Malayan emergency to fighting in Kashmir, Korea, and Palestine. The other bolt-action rifle used widely during the period was the German Kar 98K Mauser, an upgrade of the Gewehr 98, which had saw service in World War I. Some 14 million were produced throughout Europe from 1935 to 1945 under license for the Wehrmacht. A five-round stripper clip bolt-action rifle, it saw extensive service during the war and was a tough, dependable firearm and the primary rifle of the German army. In the aftermath of World War II, both the Allies and Soviets had millions of these rifles on hand, captured from the Germans, and dispersed them as a form of military aid to various groups. Ironically, it saw service on many of the same battlefields as the British Enfield, its counterpart in both world wars. The Soviets also had their own bolt-action rifle, the five-round stripper clip Mosin-Nagant, which had been developed by the Tsarist government and entered service with the Russian Imperial Army in 1891. The Red Army adopted the rifle after the Revolution, and it served as the standard rifle of the Red Army until the end of World War II, although it remained in production until 1965. In all, some 37 million rifles were produced and, like the infields, still saw service in the Cold War battlefields. Despite its obsolescence, the rifle served for many years as a standard rifle in the Eastern Bloc. It saw action in Korea and Vietnam as well as in the Middle East with nations like Syria, Egypt, and the Palestinians. World War II, though, did see the development of semi-automatic gas-operated rifles, meaning the weapons were self-loading, such as the German Kavera 43 and Soviet STV-40. However, these rifles never went into mass production as a result of the war. Production focused on proven reliable weapons versus experimental weapons. The only exception to this was the American M1 Garand, which saw extensive service in World War II and as the early Cold War as the primary rifle of the American Army. The iconic weapon carried an 8-round internal clip and could fire 40-50 to rounds a minute giving the average GI an advantage against the majority of enemy troops he came up against who carried bolt-action five-round rifles. The rifle served as the primary American rifle in Korea and served as a standard U.S. rifle until 1959. M1 Garands were also supplied to Allied and South American nations in large numbers and was the service rifle of many nations into the 1960s. Designed to answer the M1 Garand, the Soviets deployed their own semi-automatic 10-round gas-operated rifle, the SKS. The Soviets manufactured the rifle from 1949 to 1958, producing some 2.7 million rifles. The rifle was also exported to the Eastern Bloc in China and saw action in Vietnam and other Cold War hotspots. Nevertheless, the AK-47 made the rifle obsolete, and it was pulled from Soviet frontline service by the mid-1950s. Although a great rifle, the SKS didn't fit Soviet post-war mechanized tactics. The Soviets had focused on submachine gun production during the war and sought fast-moving close-quarters combat where Soviet forces could overwhelm and shock their enemies with firepower and force of numbers, and the AK-47 fit these tactics perfectly. Technologically, World War II with the advent of Blitzkrieg prompted arms producers to develop ever lighter machine guns. Heavy machine guns required two or three man teams to operate and were not as mobile. Heavy machine guns could be and were placed on trucks, armored cars, and tanks, yet this was expensive and they were bigger targets versus in a static position. Moreover, it wasn't always practical. Infantry often needed to move through rough and or urban terrain where vehicles couldn't safely or effectively travel. Hence, since the First World War, there had been a drive to put the power of the machine gun in the hands of your average soldier, making the weapon lighter and more mobile. The Germans introduced air-cooled machine guns like the MG34 and MG42. These weapons were lighter and mechanically superior to their World War I counterparts, but these weapons were still quite heavy and required the users to replace barrels to overcome the overheating issue, which meant the weapons still required two to three people to operate the machine gun. Out of this grew two solutions, the submachine gun and the light machine gun. The light machine gun was just that, a machine gun that fired a rifle-sized bullet but was light enough for a single man to operate and carry. The issue with these light machine guns was without a cool, liquid cooling system or changing the barrel, it overheated faster. Second, a lot less ammo could be carried as light as a light machine gun like the BAR or Bren, or Magazine Fed, meaning they could not maintain a sustained rate of fire. The other solution was the submachine gun, most notably the MP40, PPSH or Thompson these weapons were very powerful in close quarter fighting especially in urban warfare they used pistol ammunition like 9mm or 45 caliber so their users could individually carry hundreds of rounds of ammunition nevertheless at longer ranges they were less effective versus a rifle and had less killing power often users had to riddle their opponents even at close range to incapacitate the enemy versus if someone was shot with a rifle round the impact of a single round usually killed or incapacitated them. The other is- issue was logistical. More bullets to kill an enemy meant more production capacity and more logistics to supply more ammunition. The Germans found the solution to this dilemma with the Sturmgewehr 1944 or the Assault Rifle 1944. The SG used an intermediary round, smaller than that of a rifle but heavier than that of a pistol hence giving the average soldier a weapon that could operate as an effective rifle at longer ranges plus the ability to lay down automatic fire and operate as a submachine gun. The weapon came with a selector switch which allowed the soldier to fire the rifle as a rifle or submachine gun when needed. Therefore, the weapon could also be effectively used in both urban and rural warfare. The round was also sufficiently deadly enough to kill or incapacitate an enemy soldier with a single hit yet was still light enough that the soldiers could carry a large amount of ammo individually. The Soviets would take this development one step further in the AK-47, the weapon that in some ways came to define the Cold War struggle in the late 20th century. Indeed, the AK-47 was the most deadly weapon to come out of the Cold War, with an estimated 8 million deaths since its introduction and an additional twenty to 100,000 deaths every year. The AK and its variants are still in use around the world with an estimated 100 million AK variants currently in circulation. To quote the movie Lord of War, quote, a weapon all fighters love, an elegantly simple nine pound amalgamation of forged steel and plywood. It doesn't break, jam or overheat. It will shoot whether covered in mud or filled with sand. It's so easy even a child can use it and they do. The Soviets put the gun on a coin, Mozambique put it on their flag. Since the end of the Cold War, it has become one of Russia's greatest exports, quote. I don't know how true this is, but I have read that in some places of, of Africa and parts of Afghanistan, you are not a man until you own an AK. Even after 70 years of use, its models and variants remain one of the most popular assault rifles in the world. The weapon is known for its simplicity, reliability under hard conditions and low production costs. The weapon requires very little maintenance and is more or less designed to last forever. The AK-47 has been manufactured in numerous countries including the United States and has served in countless Cold War conflicts and is used in many if not all contemporary struggles from Syria to Afghanistan. The rifle is arguably one of the most successful in history akin to the brown Bess of the 18th century. It will undoubtedly be seen on the battlefields of the future wars for decades to come. The origins of the AK-47 are hotly contested. Many argue that the Soviets copied the SG-44 and that the AK is merely a cheap copy. Others argue that the AK is purely indigenous Soviet technological achievement. In reality, it's hard to pin down, but I would argue that the AK-47 was heavily influenced by the SG-44. The rifle's designer, Mikhail Kalashnikov, and the Soviet arms industry were no doubt familiar with the German assault rifle and were keen to develop their own version of the rifle. Indeed, all the records around the development of the AK-47 are still classified in Russia. Hugo Scheiser, A well-known German firearm designer who was one of the main designers of the SG-1944, along with 17 of his co-designers after the war, were captured by the Soviets and transported to the Soviet Union to work with Mikhail Kalashnikov's design team on Soviet small arms. The Soviets also captured the full blueprints for the SG-44. Design work on what would become the AK began in 1945. In 1946, a prototype was introduced for trials. In 1948, it was introduced into active service with selective units. In early 1949, the AK was officially accepted by the Red Army as their standard rifle. It's debatable what influence Schizer had on the AK, if any. Nevertheless, I think that it's reasonable to conclude that Schizer and the SG 44 must have had some influence on the design of the rifle. Arguably, given the rapid speed of gun development, Everyone was influencing everyone during the period, and even the SKS and the M1 Garand might have influenced the AK-47's development. For decades, Kalishnikov denied his rifle had been influenced in any way by the SG-44, claiming he had never seen one, which seemed a questionable assertion at best. In 2002 and 2003, he did admit that the SG-44 had some influence on the AK-47, and in 2009, he admitted Scheiser had helped him with the ak 47 It's understandable, though, that he might have been hesitant in giving Scheiser credit for helping to create the gun, as Soviet propaganda and later Russia have held the gun up as an example of Russian technological achievement. The AK-47 was an evolutionary jump in weapons design, but it wasn't revolutionary. It didn't appear out of the ether, either. It's not a knock against Kalishnikov. He was a genius, nor against Soviet techn- technical ability, but simply an illustration of how quickly gun design was advancing and how ideas around gun development were spreading even between adversaries. Arguably, Kalishnikov, like Browning, or Colt was a mechanical genius. Much of his genius laid in his own experience as an enlisted soldier. Unlike many inventors, Kalishnikov had served in combat and knew the conditions and realities rifles faced in real combat. He emphasized simplicity and reliability in his design. The Soviet Army during the Great Patriotic War was composed of conscripted civilians, many of whom had very little experience operating a firearm. The weapon therefore needed to be easy to operate, maintain, and be dependable. Unlike many other rifles, the parts in the AK-47 have more space to operate versus fitting together tightly, which enhanced the weapon's reliability and durability. Initially, though, the rifle was costly to produce. The main problem was stamped AK receivers, the heart of the gun's operating system. Soviet welding technology was problematic, so they milled the receivers starting with a six-pound block of steel, which took 128 milling operations to create a two-pound receiver, which was inefficient even by Soviet standards. Therefore, between 1949 and 1954, the factory went through several renovations to keep up with demand for the rifle and resolve these production issues. In recognition of his work, Kalishnikov was awarded the Stalin Prize. He was twice honored as the hero of socialist labor, becoming the director of the Kalishnikov Arms Bureau in the mid-1950s. Despite this Soviet technological achievement, the weapon remained more or less a guarded Soviet secret for the next decade. When not in use, Soviet soldiers had to carry the weapon with a pouch on it to disguise its appearance, and after firing the weapon, had to collect all spent cartridges. Indeed, Western intelligence wouldn't get its first good look at the AK until the Hungarian uprising in 1956. Like Sputnik in 1957 or the MiG-15, the AK represented a technological challenge for the West and would set the United States and the West on a path to develop their own assault rifles to compete with the AK-47. As you can see, the first five years of the Cold War were heavily influenced by the Second World War. Nevertheless, despite some similarities, there were many differences between the era and the Second World War. Weapons technology continued to develop at a rapid pace, yet the strategies and nature of war had changed. Large-scale conventional war had given way to many small-scale regional and guerrilla wars. If you enjoy this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you are already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes, or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions or donate to the podcast. Check out the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.